everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again, our 26th session in this exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, in which we venture forward into Rivendell with the first chapter of Book 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, Many Meetings. I hope everything is working. It's been a tough week here at Point North. I have been uh, vanquishing technical dragons, and the last episode of There and Back Again was released about two hours ago. So, you know, we're running a little behind, but we have a lot of ground to cover in this week's session because, as I said, we're in Rivendell. We're going to talk about Elrond. We're going to catch up on some news from Dwarven parts. But really, all of this is, is a side dish. All of this is an accompaniment. All of this is a distraction from the real focal point of this chapter, which is, to my mind, the greatest piece of poetry that J.R.R. Tolkien ever composed. I am referring, of course, to the Song of Arendel. Arendel was a mariner. We're going to talk just a little bit about that later in today's session. Thank you all so much for joining me here. It's all good. It's all working. Everything is fine. Let's get into it. Before we get started today, actually, um... I wanted to give a quick gloss of the structure of The Lord of the Rings because I've been talking about coming to an end of book one and beginning book two over the course of the last few weeks and that has caused a little bit of confusion because surely there are only three books in The Lord of the Rings and we're definitely not at the Two Towers yet. So what's up? Why aren't we going to cover the back half of The Fellowship of the Ring? And the answer is that, of course, we are. The Lord of the Rings is one novel split into three volumes, each of which is split into two books. So it is a six-book cycle, a six-book series contained in three volumes or bundled most often now in one volume. Um, there were original titles for each of the individual books, but upon publication, Tolkien and Alan and Unwin decided to drop the titles and simply number them, book one, two, three, four, five, and six. The listing in the, um, the manuscript of The Lord of the Rings at Marquette University gives the titles as follows. Uh, volume one, The First Journey and The Journey of the Nine Companions, that is to say, the first journey is Frodo and the Hobbits traveling to Rivendell, and then the journey of a mysterious nine companions about whom we know nothing as yet. Volume 2 contains The Treason of Isengard and The Journey of the Ringbearers. And I have to say that when you think of The Lord of the Rings as a six-book series rather than a three-volume series, suddenly The Two Towers makes much more sense structurally as a novel, because for those of you who haven't read it yet, the first half and the back half of, of Two Towers basically have nothing to do with each other. I mean, they are obviously connected. The story is advancing, but we don't cut back and forth between two stories. We get all of one story in book three and then all of the other story in book four. Then, moving on, volume three, The War of the Ring and The End of the Third Age. The Lord of the Rings was intended to be published as a single novel, at least that was Tolkien's original intent, but there was some drama surrounding his publication. He kind of, well, I was going to say he fell out of favor with his publishers. It is perhaps closer to say that his publishers fell out of favor with him, and he was taking the book to a different publisher who was not terribly interested and said that this this book was in dire need of excessive cutting, that they were going to strip it back to the bone and, and put out some, some shadow of Tolkien's actual work. So when he went back to Alan and Unwin, when he went back to his publisher, he said, just publish it, please, just publish it, publish some part of it, publish any of it. I don't care at this point. I have been working for 20 years on this book. Please just publish it. And so they did. One of the interesting details about The Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien was not paid in advance for this book. 
it is usual for those of you who are perhaps not on the inside track of the publishing industry, for a writer to pitch a novel, particularly successful established writers, they will pitch their novels to their publishers. They will say, okay, so I'm going to write a novel about, let's say, the nephew of Bilbo Baggins and his crazy huge adventure across Middle Earth. That's the pitch that I'm going to make. And the publisher says, okay, that sounds pretty good. Here's $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 to sustain you while you write this book. And we'll take that off the top when the book is finally published. Tolkien didn't get that from Alan and Unwin. He didn't get an advance. He didn't get any kind of, of, of allowance while he was writing the book and honestly didn't need it, very comfortable as he was in his academic life. But then he was uh, given a kind of uh, a royalty share agreement, which was by the standards of the time actually rather generous. So when The Lord of the Rings was released and immediately sold you know, millions and millions of copies, this book has sold something like 150 million copies to date, which is huge. Tolkien actually got a pretty generous cut from each of those individual copies, so it all worked out well in the end. The reason that I got into this was to say that uh, the reason that The Lord of the Rings is split into six books is because that was how Tolkien saw the structure. That was the underlying structure of the novel. It was split into three volumes, each containing two of those books, because of paper shortages and to lower the cover price. The paper shortages argument is perhaps a little... Um, is perhaps a little apocryphal. Um, I'm sure that Alan and Unwin could, had they wanted to, mustered sufficient paper to print the entirety of The Lord of the Rings, but they certainly wanted to keep the individual cost per copy down. That's why they split it into three volumes. So the three volumes doesn't have... The, the three-volume structure doesn't really have a meaningful internal resonance. At least, it is perhaps more fair to say that the evident underlying structure of The Lord of the Rings is embodied in the six-book structure more than it is embodied in the three-volume structure. That obviously is significant because in this reading, we're moving into the first chapter of the second book. We're moving into the, the book originally entitled, I always forget the titles of these books, the, book, uh, the second book originally entitled The Journey of the Nine Companions begins here with the chapter Many Meetings. And this marks one of those big, you know, important, foundational, architectural, structural turning points in the book. The flight to the Ford and Frodo's transition into unconsciousness there, and then awaking on the other side of this chapter divide, on the other side of this book divide in Rivendell, is of vital importance. So we're going to look at some of the ways in which the book has already pivoted. We, we don't necessarily, you know, know the degree to which it has pivoted yet, but I want you to think back to our discussions of tone and register and tenor, the the way that The Lord of the Rings navigates the high and the low in terms of its rhetoric, in terms of its handling of theme, in terms of its handling of of, of history and of the internal kind of uh, the internal structure of the world that Tolkien created. I want to think carefully about that as we move through this chapter. And now I'm realizing that I haven't looked at the YouTube chat in the 10 minutes that I've been broadcasting. Hey, you guys, it is great to have you all here. Um, Jackie Boatman says, this was a very expensive book to print. I can almost understand why they wanted it cut. Yeah, and it really picked up, too. It, it turned out, I mean, there's a certain pleasant uh, resonance here with the actual work of Tolkien. We're going to be talking in this very chapter about, you know, um, Gandalf's assertion that things went pretty bad but maybe they went as well as they could. Maybe there was a, a turn. Maybe, you know, things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. And it almost feels that way about the publication of The Lord of the Rings. You know, it almost feels as though, well, yeah, this was kind of a disaster. Tolkien falling out with his publisher, having this disastrous relationship with a second publisher, going back to Alan and Unwin and saying, look, I don't care, just please, just please. And then them publishing it without paying him in advance. If that book had disappeared, 
if that book had somehow failed, if they had somehow failed to bring it to market in sufficient quantity, or if they had somehow failed to, to you know, draw the audience with them. And let's remember, this was a huge risk. The last time anyone had heard of J.R.R. Tolkien was, you know, 20 years ago with the publication of The Hobbit, which is a very different kind of book. If this had faltered, we probably wouldn't be talking about Tolkien today, or we would be talking about Tolkien in the same breath as we talk about Lewis Carroll, or, or you know, kind of interesting and quirky English authors of children's fiction, but not the fathers of an entire subgenre, not the entire the fathers of an entire, you know, mythopoeic framework. Tolkien really dodged a bullet there, I suppose is one way of putting it, but also there is a sense that it is inevitable. And I find that really rather pleasing. Um Yes, as Jackie says, all's well that ends better. Good. Good. <laughs> All right, so let's get into our discussion with the waking of Frodo here in the house of Elrond. This is where we begin this chapter. Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought he had slept late after a long, unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory. Or perhaps he had been ill? But the ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. He lay a little while longer, looking at patches of sunlight on the wall and listening to the sound of a waterfall. Where am I? And what is the time? he said aloud to the ceiling. "'In the house of Elrond, and it is ten o'clock in the morning,' said a voice. "'It is the morning of October the twenty-fourth, if you want to know.' "'Gandalf!' cried Frodo, sitting up. There was the old wizard, sitting in a chair by the open window. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am here, and you are lucky to be here too, after all the absurd things you have done since you left home.' Frodo lay down again. He felt too comfortable and peaceful to argue, and in any case he did not think he would get the better of an argument." He was fully awake now, and the memory of his journey was returning. The disastrous shortcut through the old forest, the accident at the prancing pony, and his madness in putting on the ring in the dale under Weathertop. While he was thinking of all these things and trying in vain to bring his memory down to, to his arriving in Rivendell, there was a long silence, broken only by the soft puffs of Gandalf's pipe as he blew white smoke rings out of the window. Oh, we're getting some questions here in the uh, in the chat. Princess Ostrich is asking, did we skip the flight to the Ford? No, we covered the flight to the Ford at the end of last week's session, which was abortive. The Technical Dragons consumed the live recording, so I recorded a new podcast episode this very morning. It should be available in your feeds right now. So you can hang out with me live here for, you know, an hour and a half, then go listen to an hour of me talking about the last chapter, and then download and listen to the podcast version of this lecture. See, I'm just keeping your Thursdays full of Tolkien goodness. Let's take a look then at this first slide, at Frodo awakening in the house of Elrond here in Rivendell. What do we note about this experience? What is the narrator clearly trying to emphasize as we move through? Frodo woke and found himself lying in bed. At first he thought he had slept late after a long unpleasant dream that still hovered on the edge of memory, or perhaps he had been ill. There is here a powerful sense of Frodo's confusion, but the most powerful sense that I get from this opening passage is civility. We have moved back from the danger of the wild. We have moved back from the, the threat of the old forest, of even the civil danger of the prancing pony. We have moved past the trolls and the black riders, and now we are safe and we are comfortable, and it is light here. It is light in Rivendell in a way that it is in basically no other place. Oh, I, I was going to say no other place, but of course Lothlorien. It is also going to be light in Lothlorien in the same specific way. But we get a few incidental details here, even as Frodo struggles to remember. The ceiling looked strange. It was flat, and it had dark beams richly carved. Well, the fact that it is a flat ceiling is indicative, of course, that we are not in a hobbit hole. This is not a hobbit residence. This may be a hobbit 
house, but the beams suggest that this is, you know, the intricately carved uh, beams might suggest that this is not, in fact, a, a hobbit home. He lay a little while longer looking at patches of sunlight on the wall and listening to the sound of a waterfall. We have light, we have sound, we have the music of the water. This is a place of calm and rest. And if we were unsure about the restoration of civility and the use of this turning point here in, uh, in uh, Frodo's journey, well, we get two kinds of civility almost immediately. Where am I and what is the time? He said aloud to the ceiling. In the house of Elrond and it is 10 o'clock in the morning. It is the morning of October the 24th if you want to know. That is civility. Knowing the time, knowing the date, we are back in the civil world. We are back here among settled folks. We are, we are safe once more. And of course, the fact that it is Gandalf speaking and he is sitting at the window, puffing on his pipe, blowing smoke rings, which were used all the way back in The Hobbit as an indicator of comfort and, and homeliness. This is a perfect introduction to the new experience here. So from there we move into our second uh, we move into our second slide and Frodo begins to remember. What happened at the ford? said Frodo. It all seemed so dim somehow, and it still does. Yes, it would. You were beginning to fade, answered Gandalf. The wound was overcoming you at last. A few more hours and you would have been beyond our aid, but you have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. You seem to know a great deal already, said Frodo. I have not spoken to the others about the barrow. At first it was too horrible, and afterwards there were other things to think about. How do you know about it? You have talked long in your sleep, Frodo, said Gandalf gently. That it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Do not worry, though I said absurd just now, I did not mean it. I think well of you, and of the others. It is no small feat to have come so far, and through such dangers still bearing the ring— we should never have done it without Strider, said Frodo. But we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf, and that nearly proved our ruin. And yet, I am not sure. It might have been better so. So, Gandalf didn't mean absurd. He is proud of Frodo, and I think all our hearts swell maybe just a little bit when we get to that beat. He has gone through these adventures, but he has overcome. He has demonstrated this remarkable strength that we've commented upon many, many times. The wound was overcoming you at last. You were beginning to fade, says Gandalf. He was being drawn into the realm of wraiths, and his physical presence in the world. We get a brief beat from Gandalf in a few moments about there being something to Frodo of transparency now, that he has been somehow removed from the world, or, or at least in part, that he has been drained from the world, perhaps might be closer. But he was beginning to fade. The wound was overcoming you at last a few more hours, and you would have been beyond our aid, if not for the intercession of Glorfindel, if not for, I mean, any number of events along the road, it would have been too late. But you have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the Barrow. Now here we get, I, I mentioned actually in, um, I think I mentioned it last time in the live session, and I certainly mentioned it this morning uh, while recording the podcast version of last week's session, that um, the Hobbit's arrival at the Troll encampment uh, reminds me very much of them leaving the Barrow and being being commanded by Tom Bombadil to to run naked in the grass and to, to lay in the sun and to, to bask and to be reconnected with the natural world, that this is the opposition of, of cold and dark is warm and light. You know, this is the fundamental conflict between life and death that underpins so many of the conflicts in Middle-earth. So it doesn't seem random that Gandalf should pull this out. You have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the barrow. This is the same 
resilience. This is the same fortitude. And of course, drawing that comparison allows us to link together these disparate adventures into a greater thematic tapestry. We can now look at all of Frodo's journey through the first book of The Lord of the Rings and see it as a continuous succession of experiences, that these things are not disconnected. It's not, well, and then we had the Black Riders, and then we had Buckland, and then we had the Old, For the old Forest, and then Tom Bombadil, and then Bree, and so on, and so on, and so on. No, this is one continuous experience through one continuous world. Frodo's adventures to date have tested his strength in a number of different ways, but it is the same underlying conflict, and it is the same underlying strength. That was touch and go, says Gandalf, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. That's an odd transition for Gandalf there. You have some strength in you, my dear Hobbit, as you showed in the barrel. That was touch and go, perhaps the most dangerous moment of all. I wish you could have held out at Weathertop. Is that the most dangerous moment of all? Why is that the most dangerous moment of all? Well, I think because Frodo's strength all but vanished. Frodo's strength had all but given up. While he was terrified on Weathertop, he didn't surrender in the way that he was about to surrender in the barrow. If not for the actual external intercession of Tom Bombadil, there would be no story at this point. Frodo would have been an odd hobbit who disappeared from the Shire and was never seen again by anyone. And the ring, well, presumably the ring would have passed into the hands of one of the Barrowites and then possibly even back to the Witch King of Angmar. That would have been pretty bad, you guys. I'm sure Sauron would have found it sooner or later. But Frodo's own experience would have been ended at that point. Yeah. Jackie says, also, Gandalf reading Minds and Memories seems important. It's a super casual reference, isn't it? You have talked long in your sleep, Frodo, said Gandalf gently, and it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory. Okay, can Gandalf actually read minds? Can he actually read memories? Possibly. I mean, it is possible to interpret this as something much less magical and something much more prosaic. Gandalf has sat with Frodo now for days while he has recuperated here in Rivendell. And Frodo has been talking in his sleep. So when he says, it has not been hard for me to read your mind and memory, it's because Frodo's been expressing that mind and memory. It's because he's just been talking freely, you know. So Gandalf is using this kind of abstractly. He's using it almost colloquially. Yes, no, I can read your mind because you expressed everything in your mind while you were asleep. But that doesn't seem to be the implication after all, does it? It seems as though Gandalf is magically distilling some information from Frodo, discerning some information within Frodo. This is interesting. And this is one of the things that suggests that for all the comfort of Elrond's house, for all the, uh, for all the, the light and the music, the, the, the music of song, of course, but also the music of nature, of, of waterfalls and running water everywhere, for all that this is a place of enormous comfort, it isn't home. It isn't the Shire. It isn't Bag End. It isn't even Crick Hollow. This is a different kind of place. We are within the realm of fairy, and magic is in the air here in a way that it isn't back in the Shire. So these careful transitions, I am so in awe of how Tolkien handles this transition into Rivendell because we do feel so comfortable, we do feel so relaxed, and yet there is this air of, of super-reality, of hyper-reality, of some kind of extended you know, truth that, that things here are in some sense more real and in another sense less real. They are, they are more than real, perhaps might be the best way to say it. This is Rivendell. This is the house of Elrond Half-Elven. Okay. Let's, um, oh, let me see. Um, 
It's like he can touch people's minds, says Jackie, but he can sort of graze the surface of their consciousness. He's a Jedi. Yes, it's possible. That's entirely how it works. Yes. Um, and Jennifer says, or was it easy to read because everything was there on the surface, both expressed in oh, YouTube chat scrolling, both expressed in sleep talking and unexpressed, but superficial because of his dream state. Yes, that is entirely possible. It is, in, it is entirely possible, as is so often the case. I mentioned when I was talking about the actual confrontation at the Ford of Bruinen, that the, uh, the leader of the Nazgul, the Witch King of Angmar, extends his hand and shatters Frodo's sword. And it happens so quickly in the text that you might miss it. You might just skip right over it and not pay attention to it at all until at least it's mentioned in this chapter. And you go, oh yeah, he did shatter his sword. That's interesting. But that is so unusual for Tolkien. That kind of specificity when it comes to magic, that kind of, there is clearly a spell has been cast. Something has been done and the sword shatters across the span of the river or half the span of the river, I suppose. That is very unusual for Tolkien. This is much more typical of Tolkien's approach to magic. It's kind of, well, maybe. I mean, maybe there is a non-magical rational explanation, but if there isn't and there is magic, it kind of weaves through and behind and beneath normal rational thought and, and normal rational processes that, that magic is augmentative in that sense, that it, it heightens and elevates, but doesn't necessarily, you know, contradict. It doesn't necessarily transform our experience of the natural world. It makes things, again, more. It makes things greater, which I do think connects to this idea of elven hyperreality. You know, here we are in Rivendell and everything is just more. The water is more watery and the music is more musical and the bed is more bed-like. I was tempted to say beddy. Bed-like's probably better. Um, Everything here is just, it is, it is more than it is in the rest of the world, but that itself is dangerous. And that is, of course, a common quality that we associate with the realm of fairy, going all the way back to, to the oldest fairy tales, the oldest medieval versions of these stories. Yeah. As Jackie says here, pretty sure Tolkien never explains magic. He leaves it as vague as possible. Absolutely. That is absolutely what he does, which is what makes it so difficult, I think, for... For um, I always think about the Lord of the Rings online, and I think about how they tried to, how they had to build a magic system within the frame of the Lord of the Rings without making it D and D, without making it. Well, I cast magic missile. Well, I cast bark skin. Well, I cast you know, whatever third level spell you want to cast. Um, that's really tough because magic just doesn't work that way. And I think that if you're going to play in the realm of Tolkien, if you're going to play within the bounds of Middle Earth, you kind of have to fudge that a little bit. You kind of have to move toward a more generic fantasy uh, spellcasting system. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Did I cover everything on that slide? Yes. Uh, we would never have done it without Strider. I absolutely did not cover everything on this slide, you guys. Uh, we would never have done it without Strider, said Frodo, but we needed you. I did not know what to do without you. I was delayed, said Gandalf. We will get that story very soon. And that nearly proved our ruin. And yet I am not sure it may have been better so. And stop me if this sounds familiar. Because this was the story of The Hobbit, if you recall. Every time we met an intersection of the plot in The Hobbit and the path of Bilbo and company changed... It was for the better. Coming to Rivendell in the first place, crossing the Misty Mountains, being dragged into down down to Goblin Town, emerging from the uh, the eastern door, even being caught by the goblins and the wargs in the trees, going to Bayorn's, being taken by the eagles to the Carrick and then to Bayorn's house, uh, journeying through Mirkwood, even being captured by the elf king Thranduil and escaping from his uh, from his his realm in the barrels down the river. We learn when we get to Lank Town that had they simply tried to take the road, they would have found it impassable. Time and time and time again, their, their route, their, their trajectory is, is knocked askew by events over which they have no control and events which seem in the moment to be calamitous. And yet, 
when we look back at their journey, it could only ever, ever have worked out that way. Or perhaps not. Perhaps it could not only ever have worked out that way. It did work out that way, and that was fortuitous. That was all to the good. That is the eucatastrophic intrusion there. Terrible things happen, but in the end, goodness comes from them. There is some kind of guiding principle behind the journey here, some kind of, of guiding wisdom, possibly, possibly, or the other alternative is that characters possessed of sufficient virtue will always find their way. And that it doesn't matter. That actually, had they not been captured by Thranduil and taken to the realm of the Elven King, had they not, you know, spent their time, uh, if Bilbo had not spent his time, you know, stealing pies and stuff from from the the cooks of the Elven Kingdom, um, that they would have found another way. That they would have reached the end of the road in Mirkwood. That it would have been impassable, and they would have found another way through. Because ultimately, they are virtuous. They are heroic. They are good. They are driving the plot forward. So that's also a possible interpretation. But either way, this is one of the major themes. And yet I am not sure it may have been better. So could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. That works out all the time. Um, let me see here. I wouldn't want to be Gandalf's admin assistant, says Shane. <laughs> Oh, just talking about his his delay. Yes, Gandalf was busy, but we're not telling his story right now. No, and I should probably say, um, although this is perhaps unnecessary now that I am 25 minutes into this live session and I have covered a grand total of two slides, um, I was going to say that this is probably going to be a shorter session because Many Meetings is a great chapter, but it doesn't actually contain that much content. But I couldn't double it up with next week's session because next week is the Council of Elrond. Next week is... We're going to have to buckle up for that. We're going to need some, I don't know, some Luna bars and some Powerade. We're going to need to, you know, get through this thing together. I mean, it is brilliant. I love it, but it is also a lot and it is complex and it requires very careful reading. So it turns out that this week's session probably isn't going to be that much shorter anyway, but uh, next week's will be long. I can promise you that. All right, let's keep going and learn about the Black Riders from Gandalf's perspective. Then you know of the Riders already before I met them? Yes, I knew of them. Indeed, I spoke of them once to you, for the Black Riders are the Ringwraiths, the nine servants of the Lord of the Rings. But I did not know that they had arisen again, or I should have fled with you at once. I heard news of them only after I left you in June, but that story must wait. For the moment we have been saved from disaster by Aragorn. Yes, said Frodo, it was Strider that saved us, yet I was afraid of him at first. Sam never quite trusted him, I think, not at any rate until we met Glorfindel. Gandalf smiled. I have heard all about Sam, he said. He has no more doubts now. I'm glad, said Frodo, for I have become very fond of Strider. Well, fond is not the right word. I mean, he is dear to me, though he is strange and grim at times. In fact, he reminds me often of you. I didn't know that any of the big people were like that. I thought, well, they were just big and rather stupid, kind and stupid like Butterbur, or stupid and wicked like Bill Fernie. But then we don't know much about men in the Shire, except perhaps the Breelanders. You don't know much even about them if you think old Barleyman is stupid, said Gandalf. He is wise enough on his own ground. He thinks less than he talks and slower, yet he can see through a brick wall in time, as they say in Bree. But there are few left in Middle-earth, like Aragorn, son of Arathorn. The last of the kings, the race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end. It may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. This War of the Ring... Gandalf already foreshadowing what is coming next. This is pretty serious. This is pretty serious. Um, so here we get some, uh, again, just a couple of really great and engaging perspectives. We're talking about the Black Riders. The Black Riders are the Ringwraiths, the Ninth Servants of the Lord of the Rings. This is terrible. This is epic. This is huge. But actually, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Aragorn. 
It was Strider that saved us, yet I was afraid of him at first. Sam never quite trusted him, I think, not at any rate until we met Glorfindel. And of course, it is brilliant that Sam would not trust this man who was journeying with him. He would not trust one of the big people, but the word of an elf is good enough for Sam Gamgee. Let me tell you, as soon as Glorfindel is like Strider, no, he's cool, he's cool. That is enough for Sam, which I really rather adore. And then we get the sense that time has been passing. I've heard all about Sam. He has no more doubts now. And then Frodo begins to break it down. Well, fond is not the right word. I mean, he is dear to me, though he is strange and grim at times. In fact, he reminds me often of you. Hey, Gandalf, you are dear to me. You're strange and grim, but you're dear to me. I didn't know any of the big people were like that. I thought, well, that they were just big and rather stupid, kind and stupid like Butterbur, or stupid and wicked like Bill Fernie. But then we don't know much about men in the Shire except perhaps the Brelanders, and we, of course, are right with Gandalf. I don't think that any reader of The Lord of the Rings at this point believes Barlam and Butterbur to be stupid. Barlam and Butterbur is perhaps a little more slow-witted than some of the characters that we will meet, but by no means stupid and every bit as heroic as any of the hobbits, excepting perhaps Sam. Barlam and Butterbur is a man among men. Yes, Becca's calling out, the elves, sir, because Sam loves those guys. We are going to get to... Elvser. We have an Elvser in this chapter, and I'm very excited. In fact, it might even be... Oh, no, we've got a couple slides yet before we get to that. So Gandalf knows of the writers. We're learning now that uh, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the, the race of kings from over the sea, is nearly at an end. It may be that the War of the Ring will be their last adventure. Again, we get the sense of the, the passing into myth, the passing into mist, that this time is ending, that whatever comes next, win or lose, it will not be like this. The elves are fading. The Numenorians are fading. Aragorn may be one of the last, the last examples of, of genuine, you know, human heroism in the world. There are a handful of men like him, and there will not be any more. Let's keep pushing onward. What would they have done to me? asked Frodo. What were the, rider, the riders trying to do? They tried to pierce your heart with a Morgul knife, which remains in the wound. If they had succeeded, you would have become like they are, only weaker and under their command. He would have become a wraith under the dominion of the Dark Lord, and he would have tormented you for trying to keep his ring, if any greater torment were possible than being robbed of it and seeing it on his hand. Thank goodness I did not realize the horrible danger, said Frodo faintly. I was mortally afraid, of course, but if I had known more, I should not have dared even to move. It is a marvel that I escaped. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf. Not to mention courage, for your heart was not touched, and only your shoulder was pierced, and that was because you resisted to the last. But it was a terribly narrow shave, so to speak. You were in the gravest peril while you wore the ring, for then you were half in the wraith world yourself, and they might have seized you. You could see them, and they could see you. I know, said Frodo. They were terrible to behold. But why could we all see their horses? Because they are real horses, just as the black robes are real robes that they wear to give shape to their nothingness when they have dealings with the living. Then why did the black horses endure such riders? All other animals are terrified when they draw near, even the elf horse of Glorfindel. The dogs howl and the geese scream at them. Because these horses were born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord in Mordor. Not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls, and there are wags and werewolves. And there have been, and still are, many men, warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway. And their number is growing daily." Ominous foreshadowing here from Gandalf. They tried to pierce your heart with a Morgul knife, as we discussed last time. The translation of the word Morgul is simply evil sorcery. This is evil magic. The Morgul knife, which remains in the wound. If they had succeeded, you would have become like they are. The goal of 
the Witch King of Angmar, the goal of the Ringwraiths of the Nazgul was simply to turn Frodo by the use of the Morgul blade. This, we might understand, is why they retreated from Weathertop. Because their work was done. They actually accomplished their goal. They had no further need of pursuing Frodo, of endangering themselves, and they don't care about the other hobbits. They don't even care about Aragorn, as Glorfindel makes clear prior to the, uh, the arrival at the Ford. Frodo is the target, and they had achieved their goal, but they had not reckoned on the strength of hobbits. They didn't think that Frodo would be able to endure in this way. From this, we can speculate that Frodo is the first hobbit to ever have come under the direct influence of the Nazgul, of the Ringwraiths. They didn't know this about hobbits. They didn't know that this was the case. And this is one of the things that suggests to me that for all of our fears, both Fatty Bulger and Farmer Maggot actually survived the Black Riders in the Shire. That the Black Riders did not slay them out of hand, either when they were racing to the, uh, to the Buckland Ferry or when they were attacking the house at Crick Hollow. I think they survived because had they not survived, had the Nazgul actually killed hobbits, and I guess we can roll old Gaffer Gamgee into this too, can't we? Had the Nazgul actually killed hobbits, had they particularly tormented hobbits, they may have had some inkling that hobbits are stronger than anyone suggests. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf, not to mention courage. It is a good thing, says Frodo, that ignorance is bliss. It is a good thing that I didn't know what I was doing, because if I had known what I was doing, I wouldn't have been capable of doing it. That is a very sophisticated and self-aware thought, Frodo. Yes, says Gandalf, fortune or fate have helped you. Not to mention courage. This is Gandalf highlighting that theme that we have discussed so often. Yes, you had luck. Good for you. But what you did was take that luck and make it work for you. You took the opportunity that was presented to you, chance if chance you call it, gave you an opening and you took it. Yes, you didn't know about the Nazgul, you didn't know about their intent, you didn't know the incredible, unsurmountable odds that you were facing on Weathertop, but you had courage. And because you didn't know, you didn't simply cower, you didn't simply flee, you didn't simply hide. No, you called out Elbereth Gilthoniel and you stabbed the Witch King of Angmar with your sword, or at least tried to. That's the trick. That's what distinguishes you, Frodo. Not the luck. The luck is nothing. The luck is simply potential. But you have actualized that potential through your courage. And that's not nothing. Then we get, of course, this foreshadowing of the forces that Sauron has at his command. Because the horses were born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord and Mordor. Not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. Chattels here, um, serfs, servants, slaves, uh, probably closer to the last of those here. Uh, not all of his servants and slaves are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls. There are wargs and werewolves. There have been and still are many men, warriors and kings that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway. And their number is growing daily. Oh, no, no. Don't think for a second that a bright sunny afternoon is going to keep you safe from all of the agents of Sauron. And of course, we know this because we've talked about agents of Sauron in and around Bree. But now we get the sense that there is an army marshalling, a great and terrible army marshalling in Mordor. And we know from Gandalf's previous statement on the previous slide that the war is coming. The war of the ring is coming. Let's see where we are. Um, <clears throat> Oh, Leslie Skipper has slipped in all but unnoticed into the back of the lecture hall here and is <laughs> quietly not distracting anyone. Good. Um, let me see here. 
as I scroll back, we're, we're just getting we're getting a lot of, of autobiographies, I guess. How I Changed My Color is a Saruman story. Saruman Project Runway, says Princess Ostrich. The first one was from uh, Jennifer there. I like that very much. We'll get to Gandalf. Things Got Weird, the Gandalf story, says Becca Eller. <laughs> I like this very much. This is very good. I, yeah, I kind of want people to mock up... Uh, mock up fake covers of some of these books. That would be good. All right, let's get on to um, to our last beat here as we're ready to, to move into the party proper. And of course, we get Sam Gamgee. He found laid ready clean garments of green, of green cloth that fitted him excellently. Looking in a mirror, he was startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself than he remembered. It looked remarkably like the young nephew of Bilbo who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire. But the eyes looked at him thoughtfully. Yes. You've seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking glass, he said to his reflection, but now for a merry meeting. He stretched out his arms and whistled a tune. At that moment there was a knock on the door and Sam came in. He ran to Frodo and took his left hand awkwardly and shyly. He stroked it gently, and then he blushed and turned hastily away. Hello, Sam, said Frodo. It's warm, said Sam, meaning your hand, Master Frodo. It felt so cold through the long nights, but glory and trumpets, he cried, turning round again with shining eyes and dancing on the floor. It's fine to see you up in yourself again, sir. Gandalf asked me to come and see if you were ready to come down, and I thought he was joking. I am ready, said Frodo. Let's go and look for the rest of the party. I can take you to them, sir, said Sam. It's a big house, this, and very peculiar, always a bit more to discover, and no knowing what you'll find round a corner. And elves, sir, elves here and elves there, some like kings, terrible and splendid, and some as merry as children, and the music and the singing. Not that I've had the time or the heart for, for much listening since we got here, but I'm getting to know some of the ways of the place. I know what you've been doing, Sam, said Frodo, taking his arm, but you shall be merry tonight and listen to your heart's content. Come on, guide me round the corners. I'm sorry, it's just maybe a little uh, little dusty in here. Maybe, maybe, maybe just a little dusty here in the podcast studio. The reunion of Frodo and Sam is a thing of beauty. It is enormously heartwarming. It is very easy, I think, in scenes like this to understand the desire to ship Frodo and Sam, the desire that is to see this as uh, as romantic love or even as, as sexual love between Frodo and Sam. I don't see it that way. I think that to see it that way, to simplify it in those terms, does this relationship a disservice? Because the relationship between Frodo and Sam is more than the personal. Frodo here is demonstrating the virtues associated with a good master, and Sam here is demonstrating the virtues associated with a good servant. So while the connection is personal, it is also more than that. It is almost archetypal. And I love very much both of these characters in this moment. The immediacy of the taking of the hand, awkwardly and shyly, he stroked it gently, then he blushed and turned hastily away. And Frodo doesn't point this out. Frodo doesn't even reference this. He doesn't embarrass Sam. He wouldn't embarrass Sam. He just says, hello, Sam. And the hello there, H-U-L-L-O, is a very careful Tolkienian conceit here. He's not saying, hello, Sam. He's saying, hello, here, Frodo is condescending to Sam. He's lowering his register so that he can engage with Sam more directly. He is trying to put Sam at his ease. And that is, again, profoundly intimate. Profoundly intimate. Um, it's warm, said Sam, meaning your hand, Master Frodo. It felt so cold through the long nights, but glory and trumpets. <laughs> He's just so excited. It felt so cold through the long nights is a lovely beat because we already know that Sam has been here with Frodo. We already know that Sam has been attentive to Frodo. It felt so cold through the long nights. How would you know that, Sam, unless you were here? But he doesn't He doesn't tell Frodo this. He doesn't make a big deal out of his companionship, out of his, out of his service to his master. He doesn't say, meaning your hand, Master Frodo, when I was holding it all through the long nights, it was really cold. He doesn't do that. 
He just says, it had felt so cold through the long nights, and then later, not that I've had the time or the heart for much listening since we got here. He's not making a big deal out of his service. He's letting this, oh, Skipa calls it out perfectly. Yes, Frodo is code switching to make Sam more comfortable with what might, uh, might have been him taking liberties by grabbing his hand. Yes, that is absolutely right. Excellently put, Skipa. Um, and, and Sam, in return, is, is simply being enthusiastic, simply, you know, buoyant in his joy here. It's, it's just lovely. Um, and of course, yes, elves, sir, elves here and elves there, some like kings, terrible and splendid, and some as merry as children. And this, of course, echoes our discussion of Aragorn. Frodo is not fond of Aragorn, but he is, Aragorn is dear to him. They have a close and emotional connection, but it isn't a simple emotional connection. He is grim and strange. Kings are terrible and splendid. There are glories in the world which exist above our own experience, and those glories are, in some sense, in some fashion, untouchable by us. You know, kind of casting ourselves in the role of hobbits here. In exactly the same way as Frodo, as Frodo is above Sam, you know? Sam can look up to Frodo literally and can serve him and, and is an excellent hobbit because of those things. This is absolutely a testament to Sam's virtue, but they are not the same in the same way as the hobbits are not the same as the elves. And the elves aren't even necessarily the same as each other. Um, yeah, good. Sam's description nails it, says Jackie. I am inclined to agree always and absolutely. Yes, good. So back reunited with Sam, we must move on and reunite with the others, and Pippin is about to put his foot in it, not for the first and not for the last time. Hooray! cried Pippin, springing up. Here is our noble cousin. Make way for Frodo, Lord of the Ring. Hush, said Gandalf from the shadows at the back of the porch. Evil things do not come into this valley, but all the same we should not name them. The Lord of the Ring is not Frodo, but the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor, whose power is again stretching out over the world. We are sitting in a fortress. Outside... It is getting dark. Gandalf has been saying many cheerful things like that, said Pippin. He thinks I need keeping in order, but it seems impossible somehow to feel gloomy or depressed in this place. I feel I could sing if I knew the right song for the occasion. I feel like singing myself, laughed Frodo, though at the moment I feel more like eating and drinking. That will soon be cured, said Pippin. You've shown your usual cunning in getting up just in time for a meal. More than a meal, a feast, said Mary. As soon as Gandalf reported you were recovered, the preparations began. And he had hardly finished speaking when they were summoned to the hall by the ringing of many bells. Oh, Pippin, you just say the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> Sheena says in the YouTube chat, again, it becomes apparent how very young and immature Pippin is. And Jennifer says, sorry, not sorry, the Pippin story. Absolutely fair. Yes, the fool of a took. Um, it is, I think, absolutely apparent that Pippin is not just youthful, but kind of indefatigable in his youthfulness, that he will not be cowed into solemnity, at least not Yet, the arc that we get from Pippin is absolutely, or, or I should say, the success of the arc that we will ultimately get from Pippin is absolutely dependent on our understanding of this character now. He's just irrepressible. He's just joyous. He was pretty joyous before we got to Rivendell, but here, now, with all of this food and music, and now with the restoration of Frodo's health, hope, Pippin's doing pretty well here. He's doing just fine. Hush, said Gandalf, from the shadows at the back of the porch, and let me just tell you, it is absolutely appropriate that Gandalf should be sitting on a porch. That is what porches are for. Evil things do not come into this valley, but all the same we should not name them. The power of names, the, the 
literally evocative, not the emotionally evocative, but the, the literally evocative power of naming within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, here emphasized again, we should not use these words. These words themselves have the power to draw evil to us. This is not a phrase that we should use. Skipa says, Pippin has always been my favorite, and I would absolutely get that. And Lynn asks, what time would a hobbit get up that it was not time for a meal? This is the great advantage of just stuffing your day full of regular meals. That's what the hobbit schedule looks like, which I'm actually kind of into. I didn't have lunch before we sat down to start recording, so yes. Porch Club Live on Saturday, says Angela Lurie. Yes, Gandalf will be there for Porch Club Live. He's going to be sitting, uh, sitting out on the porch just blowing smoke rings. That's a pretty good way to pass an evening, let me tell you. Yes. Oh, and Jack, oh, this is interesting, Jackie. I hadn't thought of this. More than a meal, a feast. This must have been pretty extravagant, Jackie says, for Mary to consider it a feast. That's actually very fair. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, this must be, this must be elven extravagance in the highest order. Yes. So talking about, uh, talking about kings, glorious and terrible, talking about those of higher stature than us, it is time for us to meet, well, meet Gandalf, see him in a new context, Glorfindel in a new context, and Elrond within the frame of the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but his long white hair, his sweeping silver beard, and his broad shoulders made him look like some wise king of ancient legend. In his aged face under great snowy brows, his dark eyes were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold, and his face fair and young and fearless and full of joy. His eyes were bright and keen and his voice like music. On his brows sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. The face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young, though in it was written the memory of many things, both glad and sorrowful. His hair was dark as the shadows of twilight, and upon it was set a circlet of silver. His eyes were grey as a clear evening, and in them was a light like the light of stars. Venerable, he seemed, as a king crowned with many winters, and yet hale as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He was the Lord of Rivendell, and mighty among both elves and men. In the middle of the table, against the woven cloths upon the wall, there was a chair under a canopy, and there sat a lady fair to look upon. And so like was she in the form of womanhood to Elrond that Frodo guessed that she was one of his close kindred. Young she was, and yet not so. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth, and the light of stars was in her bright eyes, grey as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked, and thought and knowledge were in her glance, as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Above her brow her head was covered with a cap of silver lace, netted with small gems glittering white, but her soft grey raiment had no ornament save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. So it was that Frodo saw her whom few mortals have yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again, and she was called Ndomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Long she had been in the land of her mother's king, in Lorien beyond the mountains, but was, late, but was but lately returned to Rivendell to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladan and Elrihir, were out upon errantry, for they rode often far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Okay, this is a lot of, of backstory that we have to unpick here. There's a lot going on, and we're going to let most of it pass because there will be better opportunities, uh, better opportunities to talk about it. One of the things that I want to celebrate, though, is simply Tolkien's mastery over his language, over his, his rhetorical stance and style. Here we see language that is arguably more elevated than anything we've seen in The Lord of the Rings to date. Particularly, look at Glorfindel there. Glorfindel was tall and straight. His hair was of shining gold. His face fair and young and fearless and full of joy. Okay, that's pretty good. That, that's a pretty kind of elevated description. But then, his eyes were bright and keen and his voice like music... 
Okay, that's higher still. We're, we're more operatic in register now. We're more mythic in register now. And then on his brow sat wisdom, and in his hand was strength. This is about as high as you can go. This is about as mythic as you can get. And we see this, of course, echoed both with Gandalf and with Elrond. Venerable, this is talking about Elrond. Venerable, he seemed as a king crowned with many winters, and yet hail as a tried warrior in the fullness of his strength. He was the Lord of Rivendell, capital L, capital R, and mighty among both elves and men. This is Elrond. This is the, the ruler, the leader of, uh, of Rivendell here. Um, fair to look upon the Arwen story, says Princess Ostrich. Oh, that's a little sad. We'll get to the, the story of Arwen's mother. There is an interesting... Yes, Ethan calls it out exactly. Ethan, you're precisely right. On his brow sat wisdom and in his hand was strength. Sounds like it came straight from the Old Testament. You are absolutely right. This is the ultimate kind of, of evolution of Tolkien's writing style. This is the ultimate evolution of his his uh, his rhetoric here is quasi-biblical. We see a lot of this in the Silmarillion, but it rarely intrudes with such precision into the, the Lord of the Rings. Um, let me see here as I try and catch up with the YouTube chant. Again, you guys, pretty chatty today. Luthien, gl- glimpses of a rich history unknown, says Trig. That's actually really beautiful. Of course, we had Baron and Luthien... Um, from from Aragorn on, on Weathertop. And of course, now we see maybe why that was in his mind. Now we see maybe why his heart resides in, in Rivendell. She was fair to look at. Uh, the braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost. Her white arms and clear face were flawless and smooth. The light of stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a, uh, excuse me, gray as a cloudless night. So here we're elevating again, okay? So here under a canopy is a woman. She was fair to look upon. And so like was she in the form of womanhood to Elrond that Frodo guessed she was one of his close kindred. okay. That's basic. Basic description. Huh. Under that canopy, there is a woman. She looks a lot like Elrond. She's probably related to him. Then, young she was and yet not so. Okay. That's a little more archaic. That's a little more arch there. The braids of her dark hair were touched by no frost and so on and so forth. The light of stars was in her bright eyes, gray as a cloudless night. Yet queenly she looked and thought and knowledge were in her glance as of one who has known many things that the years bring. Well, thought and knowledge were in her glance is exactly the same as, as you know, on his brow sat wisdom and in his hand was strength. Above her brow, her head was covered with a cap of silver lace netted with small gems. Wait, what? Because the trajectory of the three descriptions that we just had was upward. Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two, but he had long hair and a beard and his broad shoulders. He made him look like some kind of ancient legend. In his aged face under great snowy brows, his dark eyes were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. You see how we move upward there? Gandalf was shorter in stature than the other two. That is a simple statement of fact. That isn't metaphorical in any way. There is no imagery associated with that at all. Gandalf, kind of little compared to the two elves. But then we get, his uh, by the end of the passage, uh, his eyes were set like coals that could leap suddenly into fire. Then Glorfindel was tall and straight. Also a statement of fact. On his brow sat wisdom and on his hand was strength. Pretty great. The face of Elrond was ageless, neither old nor young. And then we elevate again all the way through to, he was the lord of Rivendell and mighty among both elves and men. Now again, that... That is not a particularly um, metaphorical, you know, use of language there. He was the Lord of Rivendell, but the the use of the capital L and the capital R and the capital E for elves and the capital M for men, I mean, those are, of course, proper usages, but they also emphasize that, that these are specific and singular things. He was the Lord of Rivendell and mighty among both elves and men. Then we get... Um, the the uh, transition to Arwen here. And we start again, very simply. Here's the description. Oh, she's sitting under a canopy. That's cool. She's kind of looks like Arwen. She's young and ageless. Okay. Thought and knowledge were in her glance as of one who has known many things that the years bring. 
Above her brow her head was covered in a cap of silver lace netted with small gems glittering white, but her soft grey raiment had no ornament save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. So are we breaking the pattern that has been established by going up and up and up, and then, oh, also her outfit. Let's, we should probably mention her outfit. Or are we somehow completing that push upward by talking about her outfit? Why do we draw attention to her outfit at all? Above her brow, her head was covered with a cap of silver lace netted with small gems glittering white. A silver lace netted with small white gems. This is, I mean, elegant. This is not ostentatious. It's not showy. The dwarven version of this would be, you know, gems of every color imaginable under the sun and under the mountain. And it would have been this, this huge and ornate thing. We'll get the description of glowing in just a few minutes. But this is simple and it is understated and it is elegant. But her soft gray raiment had no ornament save a girdle of leaves wrought in silver. For all that she is, you know, Luthien returned to earth, for all that she is the fairest person now living in Middle Earth, she is basically the hottest thing you are ever going to see in your life. She's modest. She's humble. And that is a greater virtue. I think it may be considered by some readers to be uh, a somewhat thoughtless transition. Here is Gandalf, who's amazing, and Glorfindel, who's amazing, and Elrond, who's amazing, and Arwen, who's fine, but also hot. And let's talk about her outfit a little bit before we move on. But I don't think that we're talking about her outfit. I don't think the, the silver net studded with white gems is the important part. It is that it is only a silver net studded with white gems. It is only a soft gray dress with the, uh, with the, um, the silver leaves. This, I think, demonstrates her humility, which is also virtuous. Yeah. Um, is there something that makes his gaze linger, says Elizabeth, arrested by her beauty and elegance? Yeah, I'm struck by... Let me pull down that slide. As good as it is, I could take down the slide for a moment. I'm struck by the moment where, of course, uh, Frodo meets Goldberry, and, and, and we get the weirdest metaphor in the entire book, that, that meeting Goldberry is like going to some cottage to ask to borrow a cup of water and being met by a, a fair elven princess. That's not a communicable idea, Professor. That, that, that doesn't actually do what you want it to do, except that in the absence of, of its, its kind of semantic content, it does communicate. This is an unparalleled, you know, experience for Frodo. And then, of course, Frodo bursts immediately into poetry. He's enraptured, but he doesn't do this with Arwen. There is something else there. And I wonder about, I wonder about the nature of that. We're going to get a couple of perspectives on Frodo and elves of great beauty, great and unusual beauty in the course of the story. And I find all of them interesting. I find all of them curious. Um, we'll, we'll continue to look at this as we move through the rest of our time at, uh, at Rivendell. Good. Galadriel is different. Luthien too, says Princess Ostrich. Yes. Um, this is after, uh, yes, <laughs> Princess Ostrich says, I mean, after reading the Silmarillion, I'm a little bit tired of elven women who are gracious and beautiful and nothing else. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, and Pete calls out, this is really great. Glorfindel's and Elrond's descriptions are impressive. Arwen's is melancholy. And of course, we... Um, we get here, uh, let me put the uh, slide back up here, just so we can pull this out. Um, Long had she been in the land of her mother's kin, in Lorien beyond the mountains, but was and was but lately returned to Rivendell to her father's house. But her brothers, Eladan and Elrahir, were out upon errantry, for they rode off in far afield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Oh my gosh, and, and even before that, of course, she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Okay. The even star of her people 
Arwen Undomiel suggests that this is twilight, that this is fading. And of course, that's not unusual, you know, Luthien Tenuviel, Tenuviel meaning, um, meaning nightingale. You know, this is, this is the bird of the twilight. This is the, the song of the twilight. So elves have always been fading for as long as they are in, in Middle-earth. But there is a chance that, again, this is a name that has been given to her. And she was called Undomiel for she was the even star of her people. This is it. This is the fading into twilight of the elves. Arwen is going to be, in some senses, representative and in some senses, counter-representative of the entire passage of elven culture from this point on. And, and in some senses, up until this point. We should note, too, for those of you kind of paying close attention, that at this point, uh, Arwen is 2,700 years old. She is almost 3,000 years old. Still a whippersnapper by the, the standards of the elves here. Yeah. So, long had she been in the land of her mother's kin in Lorien, beyond the mountains... Put a pin in that. We'll get there eventually. Lately returned to Rivendell for her father's house. But her brothers, and, and that but is vital, but her brothers, Eladon and Elwyr here, were out upon errantry. Okay, so she was in Lorien for a long time. She's recently come back to her father's house here in Rivendell. But her brothers are out on errantry. And I think in that but, in that, in that contrast there, we can sense some of what is weighing upon Arwen's mind. Eladon and Elrahir were out upon errantry, for they rode off in Farafield with the rangers of the north, forgetting never their mother's torment in the dens of the orcs. Interestingly, both Eladon and Elrahir, their names mean the same thing. They mean um, elf man. The El there means elf. The Adan comes from the same root as the Dunedain. It comes from like this Numenorean root. So we're connecting the, the elf man aspect there. And of course, the Rohir come from the Rohirrim. They come from, from uh, the writers that we'll get later in the story. So uh, in both senses, man, um, uh, elf man, I suppose, is what they mean. Uh, errantry here is simply uh, questing. Errantry is is going out and and you know kicking ass and taking names, slaying the bad guys, saving the princesses, doing all that can be done. It's just it's just questing. Um, good. All right, let's keep going on because we haven't even got to the poem yet. Uh, let's talk about Glowin a little bit. Next to Frodo on his right sat a dwarf of important appearance, richly dressed. His beard, very long and forked, was white, nearly as white as the snow-white cloth of his garments. He wore a silver belt, and round his neck hung a chain of silver and diamonds. Frodo stopped eating to look at him. "'Welcome and well met,' said the dwarf, turning towards him. Then he actually rose from his seat and bowed. "'Gloin, at your service,' he said, and bowed still lower. "'Frodo Baggins, at your service and your family's,' said Frodo correctly, rising in surprise and scattering his cushions." Am I right in guessing that you are the Glowin, one of the twelve companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield? Quite right, answered the dwarf, gathering up the cushions and courteously assisting Frodo back into his seat. And I do not ask, for I have already been told that you are the kinsman and adopted heir of our friend Bilbo the Renowned. Allow me to congratulate you on your recovery. Thank you very much, said Frodo. You've had some very strange adventures, I hear, said Glowin. I wonder greatly what brings four hobbits on so long a journey. Nothing like it has happened since Bilbo came with us. But perhaps I should not inquire too closely, since Elrond and Gandalf do not seem disposed to talk of this. I think we will not speak of it, at least not yet, said Frodo politely. He guessed that even in Elrond's house the matter of the ring was not one for casual talk, and in any case he wished to forget his troubles for a time. But I am equally curious, he added, to learn what brings so important a dwarf so far from the lonely mountain. Glowin looked at him. If you have not heard... I think we will not speak yet of that either. Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe, and then we shall all hear many things. But there is much else that may be told. Glowin, journeying all the way from the Misty Mountain to uh, to visit here in Rivendell. 
this, I mean, just makes my heart glad. This just makes my heart glad. And of course, I was just talking about, you know, the, the dwarven equivalent of uh, Arwen's outfit would be this ostentatious, you know, bejeweled thing. Next to Frodo on his right side, a dwarf of important appearance, richly dressed. His beard, very long and forked, was white, nearly as white as the snow, quite cl- the snow white cloth of his garments. Some of you may remember that the dwarves in The Hobbit were color-coded and that Glowin did, in fact, always wear white. He wore a silver belt and round his neck hung a chain of silver and diamonds. Frodo stopped eating to look at him. This is, yeah, Glowin is pretty important. So here we're reconnecting. We're, we're drawing the comparison here. And this is not dissimilar, really, from our encounter with the trolls. But while the trolls were a fairy tale encounter, both kind of for Bilbo and then absolutely for Frodo and company, This is an encounter of a very different sort, because here we're emphasizing again the civility. Here we're emphasizing again, oh, no, 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 the dwarves are real people. They're from the other side of the mountains. That is a long and treacherous journey, but they're, they're real. There is civilization out there. So we connect with courtesy, not with, well, remember your story, Frodo. I'm the, the crazy dwarf who ran off with your uncle. No, it's none of that. It's absolute formality. Welcome and well met. Then he actually rose from his seat and bowed, glowing at your service, he said, and bowed still lower. Frodo Baggins at your service and your family's, said Frodo, correctly. Absolutely nailing the correctly there. This is the formal exchange. Am I right in guessing that you are the glowing, one of the 12 companions of the great Thorin Oakenshield? It's lovely. It's just lovely. And it's, uh, yes, as Jackie says, the elves are dressed in understated elegance. The dwarves, not so much. Yes, that is, that is fair. Good. Tolkien has a nonsense poem called Errantry. We are actually going to talk about Errantry. This is Trig in Ireland is, is saying in the YouTube chat. Uh, it's a very unusual rhyming scheme. It's very unusual rhyming scheme was borrowed for Bilba's poem of Arendel coming up shortly. That's exactly right. This, I think, is actually why this word occurs because Errantry is a curiously medieval word. It is compatible with the kind of language that... Tolkien uses in The Lord of the Rings. And for those of you who perhaps haven't heard this little inscrutable piece of information about the professor, he didn't favor any words that entered English after the year 1500. And by preference, would use only those words which entered the English language before the Norman Conquest. He didn't like the way that the Norman Conquest diluted English with this this, you know, motley amalgam of, of French and the other Romance languages. He didn't care for that at all. Older was better, as far as Tolkien was concerned. And Errantry is absolutely appropriate. It fits that register beautifully. But it is also a conspicuously kind of chivalric word. It is the kind of word where you might have expected Tolkien to go to an older Anglo-Saxon kind of route, to, to go to something that is, in its way, simpler. But he doesn't. He uses the conspicuous word errantry there mere pages before getting to Arundel was a mariner. And I choose to believe that that is a little joke, that that is a little reference that he included. They're engaged in errantry, you know, like the poem errantry that is the, the foundation for the poem that you're about to read in a few pages. Yeah. Um, let me catch up with the YouTube chat here. Um... Oh, we're getting the story of, of Calabrian. Yes. Uh, okay, Jonathan, I wasn't going to do this, but since you're, you're typing this out so beautifully in the YouTube chat, I will give the gloss here and, and credit you for it entirely. Calabrian, this is the wife of, of Elrond, mother of Arwen. Calabrian was on her way to visit her parents in Lothlorien, and she was waylaid by orcs in the Redhorn Pass of the Misty Mountains. She was then tormented by the orcs and received a poisoned wound. Her sons arrived much later to rescue her and had Elrond to heal her, but Calabrian was never fully healed in mind and spirit. Horrified and haunted by the fearful memories of her torture, she no longer desired to remain 
Domain in Middle Earth and sailed west in the next year. TA 2510, Third Age 2510, this is 500 years ago. 500 years ago, Calabrian passed into the West. She did what all elves ultimately are going to do. It is incredibly sad. Yes, no, it really is. And this is why, you know, there is... Um, there is a certain tragedy and torment. Yeah, I wanted to hold on that until we talk about passing into the West because I'm aware that we've kind of, I've used that phrase, you know, the elves pass into the West, capital P, capital W, but I haven't really broken that down and explained what that means. So I think we may be talking about that in one of the little Q&A sessions that we're going to be doing or possibly the roundtable um, nearly in the future or, or nearly in the future, near in the future. Yes, good. Let's... Um, Let's move on then to uh, everyone's favorite segment. This is the hottest segment in podcasting. It's Dwarf Update. Let's get Dwarf Update. And what of your own people, asked Frodo. There is much to tell, good and bad, said Glowin. Yet it is mostly good. We have so far been fortunate that we do not escape the shadow of these times. If you really wish to hear of us, I will tell you the tidings gladly, but stop me when you are weary. Dwarves' tongues run on when speaking of their handiwork, they say. And with that, Glowin embarked on a long account of the doings of the Dwarf Kingdom. He was delighted to have found so polite a listener, for Frodo showed no sign of weariness and made no attempt to change the subject, though, actually, he soon got rather lost among the strange names of people and places he had never heard of before. He was interested, however, to hear that Dian was still king under the mountain, and was now old, having passed his 250th year, venerable and fabulously rich. Of the ten companions who had survived the Battle of Five Armies, seven were still with him. Dwalin, Glowin, Dori, Nori, Biffer, Boffer, and Bomber. Bomber was now so fat that he could not move himself from his couch to his chair at table, and it took six young dwarves to lift him. "'And what has become of Balin and Ori and Owen?' asked Frodo. A shadow passed over Glowin's face. "'We do not know,' he answered. "'It is largely on account of Balin that I have come to ask the advice of those that dwell in the Rivendell. But tonight let us speak of merrier things.'" So here is our dwarf update. Everything's actually pretty good over in Erebor. The king under the mountain is doing great. He is now old. He has passed his 250th birthday. He is fabulously wealthy. Things seem okay. They're falling under the influence of the shadow, sure. But between, you know, the king under the mountain and the new king of Dale, things seem to be okay. Things seem to be going pretty well. But there is a shadow here. Of course, we should note, for those of you who have uh, forgotten or for those of you who glossed the uh, Hobbit before we moved into the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, of the ten companions who survived the Battle of Five Armies... The ten companions, down from thirteen. Thorin, Feely, and Keely all died at the Battle of Five Armies. Dwalin, Glowin, Dori, Nori, Biffer, Buffer, and Bomber are still alive and still with Dian, formerly of the Iron Hills, king under the mountain. But Balin and Ori and Owen are not. And we will find out what happened to them next week in the uh, Council of Alrond. Good. How British is that, says Skipper, that Frodo doesn't stop him even though he's lost? Yes, this is, uh, this is awfully polite. I kind of love it. I wish the conversation had been written down, says Becca. This is exactly the kind of thing that, uh, that I would have expected uh, the professor to actually have written in an appendix. And now, Appendix F, 12,000 words on the history of the Dwarven folk. I mean, actually, there is an appendix that gives us a pretty great gloss of the history of the Dwarven folk, but we'll get there. Yes. Um, <laughs> Princess Ostrich says, stop me when you are weary. Professor, I can't stop you in the book. You know that, right? Yes. Good. All right. So this is, of course, um, catching us up on events in the Eastern Lands and events in the wild, beyond uh, the Misty Mountains, beyond Mirkwood. What is happening over in Erebor and Dale? And this is important because, I mean, the context of the quest of Erebor gives us real insight here. That had the quest of Thorin and company faltered, had they 
failed to conquer the Lonely Mountain, had they failed to reclaim the Lonely Mountain, had they failed to establish a new dwarven kingdom under the mountain, um, had they even succeeded in their stated quest and recovered their treasure from Smaug, but left Smaug in the mountain, things would be dire indeed. Things would be grim indeed. Things would be looking really bad for Lothlorien if there was Smaug still under Erebor. That would be disastrous. But instead... You you catastrophically, I suppose, we have now constructed two strong kingdoms here in the east that are serving as a bulwark against the actual, you know, east, the far east, the the trackless lands from which Sauron recruits so many of his armies, the armies of men mostly from the east here. Um, There is now a force there that can stand against Sauron just bringing in as many troops as he likes. And of course, we've removed Smaug, who would certainly have worked, if not with Sauron, then... um, I suppose for Sauron, in in the broadest sense, he would have worked toward a compatible goal with Sauron. That would have been grim indeed. But the events of The Hobbit have played out such that, actually, the whole area is pretty stable right now. Things are doing okay. We're under the shadow, but things are okay. Yeah. Um, Graham says, I love how Tolkien gives the dwarves a happy ending, but manages to layer in an element of creeping doom. Yes, uh, that is one of the things that Tolkien can do perhaps better than any other writer. Um, it is extraordinary. And it's it's not just uh, proof of his rhetorical mastery. It's not just proof that he is a very good writer. It's that there is an element of imminent doom in all of his work. There is an element that the greatest days are behind us and that we are we are a civilization in decline. We are all of us a civilization in decline and that we will preserve goodness, but we will never create the kind of goodness that lit the world in its earliest days. That's true most powerfully of the elves, of course, but lest we forget, we're thinking now of of Aragorn, you know, of, of the last heir of Isildur, you know, we're, we're thinking about one of the last heirs of Numenor. Here he is, you know, the, the representative of a fading race. He's going to pass from the world and what remains will be less will be reduced, will be thin. And that's not, you know, that's not something that we should celebrate. So fundamentally, I think that that quiet tragedy of Tolkien's work is predicated upon an understanding that the golden age has passed and we are now in decline. I really must move on. Technically speaking, I have 20 minutes left, you guys. Uh, Let me say with a certain amount of certainty that uh, we're going to linger a little longer today than I was originally planning because we haven't even got to our poem, but we have got to a great reunification. Elrond went forward and stood beside the silent figure. Awake, little master, he said with a smile. Then, turning to Frodo, he beckoned to him. Now at last the hour has come that you have wished for, Frodo, he said. Here is a friend you have long missed. The dark figure raised its head and uncovered its face. Bilbo, cried Frodo with sudden recognition, and he sprang forward. Hello, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo. So you've got here at last. I hoped you would manage it. Well, well, so is all this, fe- so all this feasting is in your honor, I hear. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Why weren't you there, cried Frodo. Why haven't I been allowed to see you before? Because you were asleep. I've seen a good deal of you. I have sat by your side with Sam each day. As for the feast, I don't go in for such things much now. And I had something else to do. What were you doing? Why, sitting and thinking. I do a lot of that nowadays, and this is the best place to do it in, as a rule. Wake up, indeed, he said, cocking an eye at Elrond. There was a bright twinkle in it and no sign of sleepiness that Frodo could see. Wake up. I was not asleep, Master Elrond, if you want to know. You have all come out from your feast too soon, and you have disturbed me. In the middle of making up a song. I was stuck over the line or two and was thinking about them, but now I don't suppose I shall ever get them right. There will be such a deal of singing that the ideas will be driven clean out of my head. I shall have to get my friend the Dunedain to help me. Where is he? 
Frodo and Bilbo reunited at last, though you will see here already that Bilbo is changed, that Bilbo is not the hobbit that he used to be. He doesn't go in much for feasting anymore, and he may be the only hobbit of which that can be said accurately. Instead, he's sitting and thinking. He's not napping. He is composing a song. But even now, he knows that it's going to be driven out of his mind. He knows that he has to finish it. He has to finalize it. And only one person can help him, his friend, the Dunedain. No spoilers, he means Aragorn. I didn't pull the part where we talk about Aragorn's name here, but he's talking about about Aragorn here. Um, It's a pretty great scene. (laughs) Sitting and thinking, duh, says Jennifer. (laughs) And Becca says, oh, Bilbo, I've missed you. Yes, yes. It's very, very good. Oh, uh, Jenny calls out here. Um, I'm not sure whether Smaug would serve Sauron, but he would work with him just for the mischief. That was exactly what I wanted to pull out there. Yes, you have you have very eloquently expressed what I was uh, what I was struggling toward there, Jenny. Thank you. Yes. Um, she also says, "I don't believe him. I think Bilbo had a little snooze." Yeah, that's fair enough. And Elizabeth says, "This is where I, this is when I was thinking that this is where I wish I could go and soak in inspiration for my next novel." You guys, someone has to start Rivendell, right? We just need to like build this resort where we have people in little little prosthetic pointy ears, and there's always the sound of running water and always the sound of distant harps that are playing a tune that is familiar and yet not quite recognizable. You know, we need people to sing. We need feasts, of course, and lots of of you know, nooks and crannies and, and little balconies overlooking rushing streams. And yeah, we need, we need this thing. So uh, whichever one of you is, I suppose, the wealthiest, get started on that. You can start that out amongst yourselves in the YouTube chat. And no one thinks to tell Frodo, says Graham, that they've been chilling with Bilbo for days. Well, I like to think that they held it back as a surprise, that they knew there was going to be the feast and they knew that perhaps Bilbo was not in for feasting anymore. They knew it would be more rewarding for Frodo to, to meet Bilbo again without anticipation than it is uh, for him to expect it. But Bilbo has been changed in some ways, but not in every way. This is their next exchange. Have you got it there? He asked in a whisper. I can't help feeling curious, you know, after all I've heard. I should like very much just to peep at it again. Yes, I've got it, answered Frodo with a strange reluctance. It looks just the same as it ever did. Well, I should just like to see it for a moment, said Bilbo. When he had dressed, Frodo found that while he slept, the ring had been hung around his neck on a new chain, light but strong. Slowly, he drew it out. Bilbo put out his hand. But Frodo quickly drew back the ring. To his distress and amazement, he found that he was no longer looking at Bilbo. A shadow seemed to have fallen between them, and and through it he found himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony, groping hands. He felt a desire to strike him. The The music and singing around them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face and passed his hand across his eyes. I understand now, he said. Put it away. I am sorry. Sorry you have come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it can't be helped. I wonder if it's any good trying to finish my book. But don't let's worry about that now. Let's have some real news. Tell me all about the Shire. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Frodo smiled and laughed. Bilbo, excuse me, smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest interest to him, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the four farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes, he stood looking down at them with a smile. Though Bilbo has changed, though miles have been put between him and the ring for so long... He still yearns for it. He is still under its influence. We see what could have happened to Bilbo 
if he had continued to bear the ring. And now he is sorry. I am sorry. Sorry you have come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures have an end? Isn't this ever going to be over? Well, no. You were touched by the ring. You bore the ring of Sauron. You bore the one ring and you used it often. And even though you are a hobbit, it has left its mark upon you. Some scars will not heal within the realm of Middle-earth. Sometimes we have to go further afield. He felt a desire to strike him, says Jackie. Yikes! No kidding, right? This is... this is troubling. Though it echoes, I think, Frodo's lack of pity toward Gollum when Gandalf is telling him the story. What a pity he didn't kill the creature, says Frodo. Pity, says Gandalf. You know, we had that whole conversation. Here, it seems as though Frodo feels the same impulse. And of course, the, the little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony groping hands. I mean, we're reaching toward Gollum there. We're, we're pulling out a certain similarity. Um, yes, uh, Caroline says, does that description sound like Gollum? Yes, absolutely. Fina asks, does Bilbo really look like this or is it the ring? Um, I don't think that Bilbo really looks like this. I think that it is... I also don't think that it is necessarily the ring. I think it is a sensitivity on Frodo's part. I think that he is now partly because of the ring, partly because of bearing the ring for all of this time, and partly because of the wound in his shoulder and the the lingering consequence of the Morgul blade, Frodo is a little closer to the wraith realm than he used to be. We know that from earlier in the chapter when Gandalf was talking about that transparency, and that this might not necessarily be a, a terrible thing, or not at least a, a, a completely terrible thing. This may be more complicated than that, but it isn't, it isn't natural. It is, it is otherworldly in a very literal kind of sense, and Frodo is a little closer to that realm now than he was before. So it seems to me, at least to my reading, that he is seeing something in Bilbo's nature that is true— something to do with Bilbo's relationship with the ring that is true, but something that isn't literally true in that moment. I will say that beat in the Peter Jackson movies is pretty terrifying. It, it's overplayed to a point that is actually for me very effective indeed. I, I, I really like that moment. Um, good, good. All right. Poor Bilbo. He's been through some things, says Becca. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've been through some things. The Hobbit story, says Jennifer. Good. And Jonathan asks, Sauron's corruption tending toward violence? Um, huh, that's interesting, isn't it? Does Sauron's corruption tend toward violence? Um, yes, but I don't think that that's its primary purpose or even primary vector. Um, Sauron's corruption, whether it's direct or it's the influence of the Morgul Blade or it's the influence of the One Ring, um, the, the corruption of the shadow seems to push us toward greed and distrust and the desire for power and violence tends to spring from those things but i'm not sure that it leads us to a singular okay for example smeagol kills deagle to get the ring he strangles deagle there by the riverbank that that is maybe the first you know beat of the ring if we believe that this is that this is the actual influence of the ring over smeagol at this point smeagol strangles deagle that is potentially at least evidence of the ring's corruption over Smeagol. Was the violence there the thing that was motivated? Or was it simply the desire for the ring and violence was the most expedient means of acquiring the ring? I think it's probably more the latter than the former. And I think that making people distrustful, making people greedy, making people, you know, uh, paranoid, making people uh, acquisitive and, and, and desirous of, of power and influence and, and glory 
these things lead to violence, I think, more than they more than the ring actually triggers violence or more than Sauron's influence triggers violence itself. Um, the myth of greatness, you know, the myth of, of, of power. That is what Gandalf talks about when he talks about the ring. No, I should be too tempted to use it. Do not offer me the ring. I should do great things, but then I will succumb. It is power, not, it's not, yes, give me the ring and I will obliterate my enemies. It is not, give me the ring and I will, I will destroy every orc that has ever sullied the face of the earth beneath the sun. It's not that. It's, I would do great things. The power would be mine. And violence is attendant with that, I think. That's certainly my read of it. But uh, again, we, we're only just beginning with the influence of Sauron and the influence of the ring. So we'll have lots to talk about as we, uh, as we move forward. And of course, a- Andrea calls out here in the YouTube chat, pride and greed, two super categories of evil, particularly in the works of Tolkien. Pride and greed, about as bad as it gets. Yeah, yeah, good. Good, good, good. All right, let's uh, let's keep moving on then because it's about time that we got to the Song of Arendelle. Uh, I am going to read this entire thing because I think it is wonderful. It is one of the most accomplished things that Tolkien wrote in his entire career. It is one of the most intricate things that Tolkien wrote in his entire career from a kind of, uh, from the perspective of someone who appreciates poetic craft, who appreciates the, the mechanical clockwork precision of a well-constructed poem. From that perspective, this is one of my favorite poems. From the perspective of someone who loves myth and 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 legend and wonder and awe, this is one of my favorite poems. From someone who loves the work of J.R.R. Tolkien and loves the depth of his legendarium, this is one of my favorite poems. This is not just the best poem in The Lord of the Rings. This is, honestly, no kidding, maybe a top 10 poem, maybe a top 5 poem for me in the world. I utterly love this because it succeeds for me in terms of the legendarium, in terms of of the myth, in terms of secondary creation, in terms of the poetics, in terms of the construction, in terms of the discipline. My God, the discipline is extraordinary. This poem is composed. Let me show you the um let me show you the slide before I start to read here. This poem is composed in iambic tetrameter. That is uh, four feet of unstressed, stressed syllables. Ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. That's a very simple meter. That's a very simple, uh, very simple poetic form. Iambic tetrameter. Erendel was a mariner. There it is, okay? Very simple. But that is not all that he does here. He invents a brand new meter. This is not a meter that he pulled from medieval poetry. This is not a meter that he pulled from Anglo-Saxon poetry. This is something that Tolkien invents entirely. Trisyllabic assonances. Three sets of of assonic uh, compounds in each set of four lines. We also get the rhyme structure. The second and fourth line in each quartet rhyme. As do the end of the first line and the beginning of the second line in every pair. He has these internal compound rhymes too. Erendel was a mariner that tarried in Narvernian. He built a boat of Timberfeld and Nimberthel to journey in. I mean, that is spectacular. And then to maintain that over the course of the entire poem is, my God, extraordinary. And yet, this was not the poem that was supposed to appear at this part, in this part of the Lord of the Rings. Let me recap here. The Song of Arendelle is arguably, I think, uh, the foundation of Tolkien's entire mythology. The first version, after he came upon uh, a reference to Arendelle, uh, an angel in Anglo-Saxon text, well, he came upon that word. He was inspired to write a poem called The Voyage of Arendelle, the Evening Star. He did this in 1914, by the way, at the age of 22. 
While studying at Oxford during this period, Tolkien had developed the language Quenya. He had written the elven language Quenya. And then, and of course, I'm sure most of you know this, but if you don't, this is going to blow your minds. He had made up this language, this elvish language Quenya, and decided, hey, in order to explain this language, I should probably have a mythology about the characters and, and, and the, the peoples who spoke this language. All of the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit, the Silmarillion flows forth from that creative impulse. The language came first and alongside the language, the poem, the voyage of Arendel, the evening star. Now that poem doesn't actually uh, resemble this poem in any way. It has an entirely different form, an entirely different structure. And of course, because it was Tolkien, he went back to the Arendel idea, to the Arendel story as distinct from the Arendel poem again and again and again through the course of his career. The Arendel poem is where we first get mention of Valinor. It's where we first get the mention of the two trees, the gold and the silver trees. That's where those ideas show up for the first time. Again, later, foundational to the Silmarillion. This particular version of the Arendel story has a very complex history too, as was called out in the YouTube chat earlier. Uh, long before writing The Lord of the Rings, in the early 1930s, Tolkien wrote a poem called Errantry, which has this structure. It has this, this same iambic tetrameter. It has this same compound trisyllabic assonance. It has this same internal rhyming structure, which is so beautiful and, and so powerful. Um, but uh, he, he writes this poem, Errantry, which is a, a bit of, of silly verse. It doesn't, it, it doesn't represent anything. It isn't connected to the Silmarillion. It isn't connected to Middle-earth. It isn't connected to any of his other creations. It's just a, a little exercise of, of poetic craft. But then he keeps revisiting it again and again and again. There are six different versions of the poem in Tolkien's paper, no less than 15 further manuscripts and typescripts of Bilbo's song. He has at least 21 revisions covering the, the journey from Errantry to the Song of Arendelle. Arendelle was a mariner that we see here in the book. 21 versions, and yet this version that appears on the page before you was not the final version. There was one more revision that Tolkien made, but it was lost on its way to the publisher and was not included. So this version that we get is actually the penultimate version, which I think is... Pretty impressive, actually. And we should say that, that that can feel as though, well, this isn't Tolkien's vision, this isn't what he wanted, but he did choose not to revise the poem for the 1965 second edition of The Lord of the Rings. So he could have gone back and changed it, as he went back and changed many things throughout the span of the novel, but he didn't change this. So it's possible that in the end, this penultimate version grew on him. So I guess what I want to do is... Um, Gosh, we're, we're going to go deep into this. I hope this is okay. Um, <laughs> he said as we're coming up to time. Um, yes, and we'll get to Angela says, and Aragorn just suggests a green stone. Yes, but the green stone is very important. Well, we'll definitely get that. Yes. Um, let's get the, uh, oh no, Skeep is saying as I was reading this poem, I was thinking of Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton. Becca suggests, can we call him to write the score? Um... That I, I would die. I would probably die. I, I would be dead and that would be the end of me. And then, I don't know, someone else would have to continue this. That, that's what would have to happen. Um, let's begin then. I'm, I'm going to read the first slide here and then we'll talk about the story. Then I'll read the second slide here and we'll talk about that story and then we'll kind of gloss the whole rest of it. So this is the first half of Arendelle was a Mariner. 
Erendel was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of Timberfeld and Nimberthel to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow was fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. In panoply of ancient kings, in chained rings he armoured him. His shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrows shorn of ebony. Of silver was his habergian, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tall, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast, an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, from gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from, neither he from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste and roving still on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught, and passed and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought, the winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from west to east and errandless. Unheralded, he homeward sped. There, flying, Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit more bright than light of diamond and fire upon her carcanet. The Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then, with burning brow, he turned his prow, and in the night, from other worlds beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanal, by paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath, as might of death across the grey, and long forsaken seas distressed, from east to west he passed away through evernight he back was borne on black and roaring waves that ran o'er leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began until he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world the music long wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan he saw the mountain silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of valinor and eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas so this is the first half, basically, of Arendel's poem. Uh, Arendel is the son of uh, Tuor and, and Idril. He is raised in Gondolin before the fall of Gondolin. Arendel is seven years old when Gondolin is sacked. And if, if any of this sounds like proper noun word salad, don't worry. None of this is particularly relevant. There will be elements of this that will come back in later in the story, and there will certainly be elements of this that will come back in by the time we read the Silmarillion. So... Erendil is seven before Gondolin falls, and we've had reference made already within The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit to the fall of Gondolin. He's almost killed by his mother's treacherous cousin, Maeglin, who had betrayed Gondolin, but is saved by his father. He then goes and lives in Arvernian, by the mouth of the river Syrian. Erendil later becomes the leader of the people, and he marries Elwing, um, the daughter of Dior, who is the son of Baron and Luthien. So we're connecting Baron and Luthien all the way down here to, to Erendil and to Elwing. So Erendil marries Elwing. Then they have two sons, Elros and Elrond. That's right, that Elrond, the Elrond. Elrond half-elven, Elrond of Rivendell, is the son of Erendil, about whom Bilbo is Singing, chanting, I suppose, chanting. Arendel builds a ship and he goes forth into the world. He's going west of Middle-earth. He's trying to get to Valinor, okay? And he leaves Elwing at home with the Silmaril, with the the, the precious, you know, magical jewel that, that, um, 
that Baron had taken, that, that Baron of Baron and Luthien had taken from Morgoth at the end of their story. So, so Baron takes the Silmaril from Morgoth. He comes to, uh, to Arvernian. The, the Silmaril is passed down to, he doesn't come to, it comes to Arvernian, is passed down to Elwing. Arendel goes off sailing. He leaves Elwing at home. Arendel has no luck. He has no luck trying to find it. Beneath the moon and under star, he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands, from gnashing of the narrow ice. The narrow ice, by the way, is my favorite word in Tolkien's work. The narrow ice that he refers to here is the, the crashing sheets of ice at the pole. That is the Hel Karaksa. That is the best word that Tolkien ever invented, in my humble opinion. From gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste and roving still on starless waters far astray. At last he came to night of naught and passed, and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. He's out there for years, and he can't find Valinor. So he turns around. He starts coming home. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled from west to east and errandless, unheralded he homeward sped. But, and this is the part that's missing from the poem, tragedy has befallen Elwing. Um, the Silmaril is, is wanted here by this point. The sons of Feanor are searching for the Silmaril. They attack the people living in Arvernian. They kill basically everybody. Elwing escapes by jumping into the sea. She, she flees with the Silmaril because she doesn't want it to be taken by the sons of Feanor. She leaps into the sea where Olmo, the Valar of the ocean. You know, we've talked before about the, the Valar and the way that they have dominion over certain parts. Or, no, not dominion. Tolkien would not have liked that. The way that they are representative of, of certain parts of Middle-earth. Olmo is the, the Valar of, of the ocean. He bears Elwing up out of the waves and transforms her into a bird, and she sets off across the ocean to find Arendel. She bears him the Silmaril. The Silmaril, she bound on him and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow, he turned his prow, and in the night, from other worlds beyond the sea, there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel. So she places the Silmaril on Arendel's brow, and suddenly a storm arises, and the path is made clear. Through ever night he back was borne on black and roaring waves that ran, or leagues unlit and foundered shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world the music long, where ever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan, he saw the mountains silent rise, where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor, and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. So he finds it. And that's the end of the first half. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. I am having, no kidding, the time of my life. I adore this poem very much. If there's any of the, uh, if there's any of the language that you want me to clarify too, let me check actually the YouTube chat to make sure that there isn't. Um, it's Baron and Luthien's all the way down, says Skipa. Again, foundational, right? Foundational myths for Tolkien. Baron and Luthien, Arendelle, you know, uh, the Silmarils, I suppose, to a certain extent, Valinor and the Two Trees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pete says, hearing this read aloud really brings home that, hey, this is meant to be read aloud. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Trig is saying here that, that errantry may be silly fluff, but it's clever and, f and fun, silly fluff. No, it's incredibly clever. That's the thing about errantry is that he's absolutely using this structure. It's incredibly complex and demanding. It's just, it's, it's ultimately insubstantial. But as an exercise, it is staggering. It is absolutely bewildering. bewildering. It is, it is, it is just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, women in Tolkien, says Jackie Boatman, aren't great at staying home. I completely agree. I'm kind of super into that. Let me tell you. All right. Let's move on to the next slide here. So 
He has crossed the ocean. He has Elwing. He has the Silmaril. He has now found his way to Valinor. What's next for Erendil? A wanderer escaped from night to Haven White. He came at last to Elvenholm, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass beneath the hill of Elmerin, a glimmer in the valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored in the shadow mirror. He tarried there from errantry, and melodies they taught to him, and sages old him marvels told, and harps of gold they brought to him. They clothed him then in elven white, and seven lights before him sent, as through the Calicurian to hidden lands forlorn he went. He came into the timeless halls, where shining fall the countless years, and endless reigns the elder king in Ilmarin on mountain sheer. And words unheard were spoken then, of folk and men and elven kin, beyond the world where visions showed forbid to those who dwell therein. A ship then new they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass, with shining prow, no shaven oar nor sail she bore on silver mast, the silmaril as lantern light, and banner bright with living flame, to gleam thereon by Elbereth herself was set, and thither came, and wings immortal made for him, and laid on him undying doom." to sail the shoreless skies and come behind the sun and light of moon. From Everyven's lofty hills, where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore a wandering light beyond the mighty mountain wall. From a world's end there he turned away and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and burning as an island star on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where grey the Norland waters run, and over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days and years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade an orbid star to pass and tarry never more on hither shores where mortals are, for ever still a herald on an errand that should never rest, to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifar of Westerness. So, having arrived in Valinor, Arundel realizes that he has passed beyond the mortal realm, that the Silmaril has taken him not just to a place in the world, but a place fundamentally beyond the world. So he's driven forth by the tragedy that's happened in Arvernian. He's grieving horribly. He seeks Valinor. He finds it. It's everything that he expected. But because of Arendel, because he had undertaken this errand on behalf of, of men and elves, because he had done this thing for the good of the world, not for his own sake, Manwe the Vala refuses to kill him out of hand. This is the standing punishment for any mortal who, or any mortal or immortal, any child of Iluvatar who seeks the shore of Valinor. It's death out of hand, but not for Arendel. Also, because Arendel and Elwing are descended from elves and men, they get to choose what they want. They get to choose, do they become elves? Do they become men? Elwing chooses to be one of the elf, uh, one of the elves, excuse me. And Arendel, though he would have preferred to be a man, also chooses to be an elf. Then, finally, he is elevated. This, this new ship is constructed for him, and he has raised up into the sky. This is, I talked gosh, a long time ago, about one of the primary functions of myths being the explanation of the natural world. And there are lots of myths about the morning star. But Arendel is the morning star here in, in 
the, the Tolkienian concept of the universe. Here for Middle-earth, Arendelle, the, the morning star itself is the Silmaril shining on the brow of Arendelle as he passes across the sky in his ship. This is the doom that is laid upon him. But on him mighty doom was laid till moon should fade till moon should fade forever, an orbit star to pass and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. You don't get to come back. You're up there. You are the star. You have to journey and give hope and give inspiration to all those beneath you. Forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the flamifer of Western S. This is that account. This is this, this, you know, the, the creation myth, a fragment of the creation myth, you know, that explains the, the, the world around, <clears throat> excuse me, that explains the world around the men and elves and hobbits, though clearly Arendelle is, you know, uh, an ancient story. Yeah. Um, good. Let me see here as I scroll back through the YouTube chat to see what is happening here. Um, <laughs> perfect melding of myth and poetry, breathtaking beauty, says Angela Louise, summing in a, summoning it up perfectly, uh, summing it up perfectly, probably. Shane Diener says, you can't leave fairy unchanged. At least he gets a kind of happy ending. Yes, that is crucial. You don't get to come back. Once you have gone into the realm of fairy, and for all that we talk about fairy existing within Middle-earth, it doesn't, not really. It is more fairy. You know, Rivendell is more like the realm of fairy than the Shire or, uh, you know, other other parts. You know, uh, you can make those transitions within the frame of Middle-earth, but that's not real fairy. This is the remnant of fairy that is brought with the elves. Yeah, good. Venus, the morning star, says Trig. Absolutely. That's it. It's really quite beautiful. Really quite beautiful. Um, Jonathan Nash says, but is it a creation myth when there are characters in the world that are aware of it and knowing the stories to be true? Well, this is interesting. Um, Tolkien's intent was never to write a creation myth for Middle-earth, per se. Tolkien's intent was to write a creation myth for us, for England. So when he's specifically England, I'm not being, you know, horribly, you know, geographically biased there. He was specifically lamenting the absence of a kind of, of, of cultural aggregate mythology for England specifically. Um, and he wanted to create one. And that was part of the influence that led him to write the Silmarillion, to, to prepare all of this material. So it is a creation myth, not from the perspective of the elves who were, of course, there and who know this to be true. And hey, we've hung out with the Valar like a hundred times. And also there's Gandalf. He's a Maiar. This is, he's, he's a Maya. Excuse me, I gotta get my singular and plural pronouns right. Uh, he, you know, he's just hanging out over there. We remember these things happening. You know, literally I am the son of Arendelle about whom you are singing. Yep, that's him right up there. That's, that's Venus in the morning sky. That's where he is. It's not a creation myth for the elves or even for the men who occupy Middle-earth. It is a creation myth for us. So that's the, that's the kind of qualification that I would draw there. All right, let's, um, let's move on because believe it or not, having discussed Arendelle was a mariner and God knows I could do another half an hour on that. We're still not finished. We have a little more to do. So let's uh, move on to the next slide. It is not easy for us to tell the difference between two mortals, said the elf. "'Nonsense, Lindir,' snorted Bilbo. "'If you can't distinguish between a man and a hobbit, "'your judgment is poorer than I imagined. "'That is different as peas and apples.' "'Maybe. "'To sheep, other sheep no doubt appear different,' laughed Lindir. "'Or to shepherds, but mortals have not been our study. "'We have other business.' "'I won't argue with you,' said Bilbo. "'I am sleepy after so much music and singing. "'I'll leave you to guess if you want to.' "'He got up and came toward Frodo. "'Well, that's over,' he said in a low voice. "'It went off better than I expected. "'I don't often get asked for a second hearing. "'What did you think of it?' "'I'm not going to try and guess,' said Frodo, smiling. 
You needn't, said Bilba. As a matter of fact, it was all mine, except that Aragorn insisted on my putting in a green stone. He seemed to think it important. I don't know why. Otherwise, he obviously thought the whole thing rather above my head, and he said that if I had the cheek to make verses about Arendelle and the House of Elrond, it is my affair. I suppose he was right. I don't know, said Frodo. It seemed to me to fit somehow, though I can't explain. I was half asleep when you began, and it seemed to follow on from something I was dreaming about. I didn't understand that it was really you speaking until near the end. Lindier, says Jennifer, is hella snooty. That he is, yes. Uh, it is not easy for us to tell the difference between two mortals. Two sheep, other sheep, no doubt, appear different, or two shepherds. But mortals have not been our study. We have other business. Thanks, Lindier. Great. Good job. And Jackie says, lol, good point. Aragorn, yes. This is exactly what I was saying. <laughs> if I had the cheek to make verses about Arendelle in the house of Elrond, it is my affair. I suppose he was right. Hey, Attention, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to interrupt the festivities right now to sing you a song that I have written about our host's dad. Yep, that's the one up there in the sky. Let me tell you about Arendelle. I do like, by the way, very much that Tolkien gives Bilbo the credit for what he even acknowledged was the most complex poem that he ever wrote. Tolkien actually, <laughs> in a couple of his letters, refers to this poem and says, yeah, I did it. I'm never doing it again. I'm never writing in that form again. Are you kidding me? That was way too difficult. So I like that he has, having accomplished this incredible feat, now hands off the responsibility for it, the, the credit for it, to Bilbo. That's really rather good. So, and Aragorn's ancestor too, says Jackie. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're connecting back through both sides here. Uh, yes, the the uh, genealogy is slightly complicated when you're dealing with... Um, with uh, elves here too, but yes, for those of you who recall, Arendelle is a direct ancestor. Um, one of the things that I wanted to uh, call out here is the green stone, but I'm not going to get into it right now. What I want to do is put the world's largest and most ornate and, and you know, emerald bejeweled pin in the idea of the green stone and keep it until later because it is going to be very relevant later in the book and really quite beautiful, but I don't want to anticipate it. So if we can all just remember, if we can all make a pact to remember that when Bilbo was composing the Song of Arendelle, Aragorn just insisted that a green stone be added. And we know, by the way, that it is the, uh, upon his breast, an emerald, that that is the line that, that he added because that's the only reference to a green stone in the poem. Let's put a pin in that and we'll, we'll wait until later because, oh, I love that when it, when it comes up. It's, it's so good. All right, let's move on. I have one slide left. It is the very end of the chapter. This will carry us through to the Council of Elrond next week. Frodo halted for a moment, looking back. Elrond was in his chair, and the fire was on his face like summerlight upon the trees. Near him sat the Lady Arwen. To his surprise, Frodo saw that Aragorn stood beside her. His dark cloak was thrown back, and he seemed to be clad in elven mail, and a star shone on his breast. They spoke together, and then suddenly it seemed to Frodo that Arwen turned toward him, and the light of her eyes fell on him from afar and pierced his heart. He stood still enchanted. While the sweet syllables of the elvish song fell like clear jewels of blended word and melody. It is a song to Elbereth, said Bilbo. They will sing like that and other songs of the blessed realm many times tonight. Come on. He led Frodo back to his own little room. It opened onto the gardens and looked south upon, across the ravine of the Bruinen. There they sat for some while, looking through the windows at the bright stars above the steep climbing woods and talked softly. They spoke no more of the small news of the Shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompassed them but of the fair things they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. At last there came a knock on the door. "'Begging your pardon,' said Sam, putting in his head, "'but I was just wondering if you would be wanting anything.' "'And begging yours, Sam Gamgee,' replied Bilbo. "'I guess you mean that it is time for your, it is time your master went to bed.' "'Well, sir, there is a counsellor in your morrow here, "'and he only got up today for the first time.' 
Quite right, Sam, laughed Bilbo. You can trot off and tell Gandalf that he has gone to bed. Good night, Frodo. Bless me, but it has been good to see you again. There are no folk like hobbits, after all, for a real good talk. I am getting very old, and I begin to wonder if I should live to see your chapters of our story. Good night. I'll take a walk, I think, and look at the stars of Elbereth in the garden. Sleep well. This moment of connection between Bilbo and Frodo is, I think, deceptively simple. I think there is much more here than we might initially realize. They have been reunited, and earlier they talk of all the small news of the Shire. They share all of the incidental details, and Frodo tells them the, the chopping down of the, of the least tree. We're talking about these minor, minor pieces of, of gossip and speculation about life in the Shire, and Bilbo eats it up. This is great. This is exactly what he wanted. But now, after the music, after the song, after the glimpse of Arwen, Arwen looking at Frodo and him being stricken again, after the song to Elbereth, the songs of the Blessed Realm, they go back, they sit quietly, they smoke no, spoke no more of the small news of the Shire far away, nor of the dark shadows and perils that encompass them, but of the fair things they had seen in the world together, of the elves, of the stars, of trees, and the gentle fall of the bright year in the woods. And this, as Bilbo says, is a really good talk. There are no folk like hobbits, after all, for a real good talk. This is about as good as it gets. We've moved beyond gossip. We've moved beyond news. We've moved beyond information. We've moved beyond planning and, 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 and intelligence. You know, we've moved beyond the troubles that we are now facing. We are talking instead about constants. We are talking instead about absolutes. We're talking about the bright fall of the year in the woods. We're talking about you know, elves and of stars and of the constants in the world, the constants that fade slowly, that fade reluctantly, perhaps, but for those things which are for us in the frame of our mortal experience, absolutely constants. This is what we talk about. This is the piece that we find. And this, it seems to me, is is integral to the magic of Rivendell. This is one of the things that, that makes Rivendell what it is. And it is one of the things that is inevitable because Rivendell is what it is, that this is a place of rest of contemplation of truth and of grandeur it is a place of beauty and because the elves are the elves and because professor tolkien is professor tolkien that beauty is tainted with sadness it is tainted with grief it is tainted with tragedy it is tainted with with the passing of of years and of glory and of grandeur and of beauty from the world it is different that i think is enormously powerful We're going to move into the Council of Elrond. We're going to pick up a few of the threads that we've established in this session. Next time, let me show you that slide. I really need to uh, wrap up here before I keep you all just for the rest of the day talking about this. Uh, Oh, as Skipa says, this is the talk of things worth remembering forever. That's beautiful. And and Pete says, noticed on rereading that uh, Elbereth Gilthoniel has the same, riven, uh, the same rhythm as The Road Goes Ever On. I like to think that Bilbo heard it when he was first in Rivendell and kept humming it to himself. That's a beautiful observation. I like that a lot. Good. Yes, yes. Uh, and Jonathan Nash says, getting into the great philosophy discussion with your best friend and realizing it's midnight when you're interrupted, that's about as good as it gets, right? That's about as good as it gets. All right. Let's uh, call out the next session. The Fellowship of the Ring, book two, chapter two, The Council of Elrond, brackets, yes, all of it, 9 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, August 3rd, 2017. That will be our session next week. There is still a possibility of uh, another Q&A session between now and then, some kind of roundtable, something. My schedule is crowded and technical dragons are what they are. 
I'm glad to see that everything seems to have been pretty straightforward this time. That's always a relief. So stay tuned to pointnorthmedia.com to find out more or follow Point North Media on Twitter. Better still, head on over to our Patreon page. Everything that I do here at Point North Media, all of these discussions are made possible thanks to you, thanks to your support. If you have enjoyed an episode of There and Back Again, particularly if you have enjoyed every episode of There and Back Again, and you have a dollar a month or more that you would like to pledge to a good cause, to the continuation of this series, to other series that I'm planning in the future... I need it. I would love to have it. I need it in order to do this work. Please head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. All your support is hugely appreciated, of course. And that includes the support of everyone who is right here with me today. Guys, thank you so much for being here. This has been just enormous fun. I've been looking forward to talking about uh, Arendelle was a Mariner since the beginning of the book. And now we've done it. And next week, the Council of Elrond. So much to discuss. So much to get through. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank you all so much for your attention. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, take care.